Welcome to the Housewife of Horrors Podcast. Hey, hey, true crime lovers, welcome back. And this is another uh, another request episode. Uh, but before we get into that, I am your host, Regina, here with my ever-faithful companion, Evil, from 3B Video. Say hello, Evil. Greetings, crime fanatics. All right. Well, um, this week, like I said, is a request from out of New York this time. We kind of, you know, did some Kansas City stuff there for a few episodes, but we got a request out of New York from Danica. I hear if you make it there, you can make it anywhere. It, what, yeah, yeah, that's the word on the street, apparently. So. We're in a rowboat. So anyway, um, this request... Um, comes out of New York City, uh, and it is the case of Emmet St. Gian. I hope that I am saying that name right. That's kind of how they pronounced it on the couple shows that I watched about her. And this is a just a sad cautionary tale about safety and people that you think are there for your safety and how that can all just go wrong very quick. So... Uh, not to hesitate and to jump into things. Um, I got this. My notes are from a couple different sources. Uh, I did local papers out of New York City, uh, CNN, and then I did two investigation discovery shows. One of them was torn from the headlines, the New York Post reports, and it's the episode Last Call at the Falls, and it aired on March 17th of 2020. And then the their series, A Time to Kill, Season 3, Episode 9, Sable-Eyed Beauty, which aired in June of this year, 2021. So um, the timelines are going to kind of convolute because I'm going off of, you know, what we know from her past, what we know of the timeline, and then we're also going to inject... Uh, police coming into this the police coming in days into this timeline so if it gets a little confusing it's just because I'm going from a couple different sources of you know timed articles and then what the police were you know their timeline from a time to kill so moving forward sounds like you need to get get your multicolored string and thumbtacks handy Yes, get the string, get the tax, and get the tack board and Charlie Day, and we are going to solve this. Well, we're, we're solving gonna, this. We solve everything. It's already solved. Well, our job is done. We'll see you next oh, week. Oh, shit. Folks. Spoilers. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to give that away. Anyway, so moving on. Um, I just want to, uh, yeah, I had to adjust it because we're getting a little loud here. But okay, Amet Singh Gian, uh, she is. She lives in Boston. She ends up graduating high school in 1999. After graduation, she does what a lot of graduates do, and she wants to go to college. So she moves to Washington, D.C. to attend George Washington University to study criminal justice. She graduates there in 2003 and then enrolls in the John Jay College of Criminal Justice to obtain her master's degree. 
and life at this point is just really on track for her. She's in the top 5% of her class. Just things are coming up roses for her. Well, then we get to May of 2004 when uh, Daryl Littlejohn, he is somebody we're going to talk about a little bit later, but he is in this part of the story. He is up for parole and... Um, he, of course, is using his three kids as this excuse to say, and I say excuse because I wrote the notes for this and I know how this turns out, but he uses these kids of his as an excuse to say, I'm a changed man that, you know, I'm not going to be going back to the can. I got something to live for on the outside and that will be very short lived. Anyway, so now... October 2005 comes along and I hope to God I am saying her name right. If not, I terribly apologize, but Just wing it. Shania Woodard, a 19-year-old college student, is making her way home from class when she's approached by a man who is, claims he is a police officer. He gets her in handcuffs and he starts beating the shit out of her. Uh, she manages to escape from his van and get away. It's a police van. Right. He He's uh, like this cop that has this piece of shit minivan that he's apprehending people in. So that's the, it's not police standard at all. So Their budget cuts to the department. Well, um, and if I leave a loose end, believe me, like this, I'm going to kind of move on from Shania. Uh, we'll come back. So just know if I ever leave something hanging there, it's because it's going to come back later on. So then we fast forward a few months to February 23rd. In Met, St. Gian, she just gets back from Florida with her family, spending time with friend, family down there for her birthday, which is on March 2nd. So she is just days away from turning, I think it was 25, if I remember right. So she's just getting back. She's getting settled in. The next day, she meets up with her bestie, Claire Higgins. Uh, and the, they, of course, they go out, they hit the town, they're doing like a pub crawl, like a lot of people do for their birthdays or just, you know, for a night of fun, you know, they're college students. They want to let their hair down. Always wanted to do a pub crawl. Never got around to it. Well, the night goes on. We start getting into the early hours of February 25th. It's around 3.30 a.m. The bars close at 4 a.m. in New York. So we're right around 3 a.m., 3.30, I'm sorry. And there is Claire and Emmett. They start having discussions, maybe even a little argument. Claire wants to go home and call it a night. Emmett is ready for some more fun. She's not ready to call it a night. Um, I'm not going to say bad things about the people involved in this story except for the killer but at this point Claire leaves Emmett she gets in her cab she goes home Emmett takes off on foot I feel she broke the cardinal rule right there we come together we leave together but yeah but at some point you know like it's three in the morning like <laughs> even even at like a young age like that, like come on, we've can we call it please? The sun'll be up in like two hours. Well, Claire calls her when she gets home and she asks where she is 
and that she'll come get her but at this point Emmet says that she doesn't know what bar she's at and she's going to finish up this drink she's going to call it a night after that and that was about 3 45 a.m so apparently claire lives close and Emmet was i guess a little closer to being done than she thought she was last seen at the falls um, I'm going to not say the rest of my notes right there because I don't want to give any spoilers away. But the Falls is a bar restaurant that's located in the Soho neighborhood of New York. And it is owned by uh, the Dorian clan. Every time I read about this family, I'm going to take a little side note here. Every time I read about this family, because apparently they're a pretty big family that owns multitude of bars throughout the five boroughs of New York. But there's some scandal. These people, um, you know, they've had some uh, scandal at their bars and just, you know, amongst the family, they don't become infamous for just owning bars. So moving on, later that night, which is still February 25th, police receive an anonymous tip from a payphone caller from the Lindenwood Diner. And since it's a payphone, we know that the police already said that they can't get any viable fingerprints because like 101 people are still using this phone in 2006. So uh, the caller says that there's a dead body located on Fountain Avenue and Spring Creek Park, which is about 15 miles away from the falls, which in New York, that's like almost an hour away. It's like 45, 55 minutes away. See, 15 miles here in KC, you can get there in like 15 minutes. So anyway, the caller says that he sees a body wrapped in a sheet and he doesn't want to give his name. He says he doesn't want to get involved and he hangs up. At 8.26 p.m., so I'm assuming shortly after that anonymous call, the police find a nude woman wrapped in a comforter. Her hands and feet were tied up with like zip ties and her fingernails were broken where she had tried to fight off her attacker. Defensive wounds. Very much so. Like, I know that the show shows a dramatic reenactment, but those fingernails, I mean, yeah. Well, that was your claim to fame is you're the dramatic reenactment actors for murder shows. I mean, that's how a lot of actors started because like Bill Mosley... Uh, Doug Jones oh, yeah, and Matthew, Matthew McConaughey, McConaughey have all been in episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. And you better believe, even in Unsolved Mysteries, that fucker McConaughey gets his point in there. Yes, he has that infamous point. But Finger point. Moving back on, um, some weird stuff here. They find a um, sock shoved down her throat, and then um, he proceeds. They found her head wrapped in tape. And weird thing, he cut off some of her hair. So, um, obviously... So it's, um, it's Crispin Glover from Charlie's Angels, apparently? She uh, did pass away from asphyxiation. Um, I mean, it was kind of obvious with the sock down her throat, but, you know, the police, of course, wanted so, to determine that was that it, wasn't put there post-mortem. Was, where was the tape at? The tape was all around her head. Her, her whole head? Yes, Okay. Yeah, it, it's crazy. It's not just, you know, a piece over her mouth. This is like a half a roll. Uh, okay, maybe not a half a roll, but he took that roll and that just went around her head. Gorilla tape or whatever. Well, 
since she is dumped in the Fountain Avenue area, uh, the police initially think that she is a prostitute because that area is kind of a dumping ground. Yeah, um, that's not a good sign. Well, and then there's a side note. So I got this tidbit from the New York Post show, but one of the reporters said that uh, it's such an infamous dumping ground that there's a mall that was built a short distance from where Emmett's body was found. And when they were breaking ground for that mall, they were digging up bodies that had been dumped years ago. So if that just kind of tells you a history of the area, um, you know, it's frequented by prostitutes. Prostitutes are killed and dumped there. They also mention that it is a bit of a mob dumping ground as well. And when, if you've listened to any of the episodes of this show, you can clearly tell that there's not a great relationship between uh, law enforcement and solving prostitute murders. Right. Like, they're, I understand they may not be pillars of the community, but there's somebody out there, like, killing prostitutes. These are people. But needless to say, she's not a prostitute. That was just their initial thought due to where she was dumped. But as soon as, as that's an assumption, I'm the, the heart immediately sinks going, well, that's going, even as speculation, that's going to kill the drive of an investigation a little bit, even if it's speculated. So now police start working on figuring out who she is. So right now they've got a Jane Doe, but we all know it's a Met at this point. The news works in conjunction with the police to identify a Met. Uh, a day later, her cousin calls police and says, my cousin's been missing for a couple days. Police ask her to come in, uh, but she's like, uh, she kind of refers it over to a Met's sister, Alejandra. So Alejandra ends up coming to the police station. She tells them, yes, my sister is missing. Um, she, of course, they take her down to the body. She IDs the body, and it is in Met St. Gian. So now Jane Doe now has a name to police, and the cops get, uh, get even more information from the sister. They find out, like, her friends' names. They find out details. Did she have a man? What's going on in her life? Well, that leads to an ex-boyfriend who actually had spoke to her that day, but apparently he and Amet were just friends, and he was out with his girlfriend that night, his new girlfriend. So he's got a rock-solid alibi. Then they move on to Claire Higgins, who she was with that night. Um, which we already talked about how she was with her. They went to the pub crawl kind of thing. She left her. That was the end of the story. Well, since they don't know what bar that she went to, they pull her credit card records. And that that's when they find that she had two rum and cokes at the Falls bar. Uh, and I kind of already went into how the Falls is owned by the Dorian clan. Um, and... <laughs> Now they have another scandal on their hands. And you're probably thinking evil. Another scandal? Impossible. So back in 1986, another bar that was owned by the Dorian family, a very, very um, popular murder had not occurred there, but started there, then occurred elsewhere. But the preppy murder happened there where uh Jennifer, what it's referred to as yes it was referred to as the preppy murder because it was this young up-and-coming you know wall street kind of guy trying to make you know be preppy and shit and well he wasn't trying to be preppy he was but i'm just picturing i do with the 
sweater tied around the neck. Uh, what was his name? His name was uh, Robert Chambers. Here it is. Oh, that totally sounds like upper crest preppy name. So he meets Jennifer Levin at the Red Red Hand. Red as in the color, hand as in what's on the end of my arm. Red right hand is in the song. So they met at the Red Hand Bar, apparently hit it off. Chambers takes Levin home. He says they had a night of rough sex. She's dead. So that's a whole other case on its own, but that did... I mean, we've all been there. (laughs) That did happen in one of the Dorian-owned bars. Now here we are, 2006, we have another girl who was last seen in a Dorian bar. We now have a dead body. What the hell is going on with these Dorian bars? Where's Chambers? Uh, I believe, I I don't know too much about that. I had to kind of do some looking up to that. I mean, there's so much true crime, I can't keep on top of all of it. That's that's a lot. (laughs) If we want, we'll get into him at a later date. Anyway. Chambers, we're coming for you. So, neighboring security cameras catch Emmett going into the falls at 3.40 a.m., but there is no footage of her leaving the bar at 4 a.m. when it closed, or there's no footage of her leaving at all at any time so she's there what the hell so from here police have already questioned many of the bars in the area including the falls and uh so that's they get to the initial canvassing they get to daniel dorian who was working that night when they come in they've got a picture of her saying hey this girl's gone missing do you know where she's at have you seen her and he's just basically very dismissive no i ain't seen her i got shit to do move on and they're like can you at least look at the picture he finally just in this pissant attitude picks it up and's like no i don't remember so we have him on the initial canvassing saying no I don't remember. No, she wasn't in here. Police know he's fucking lying at this point because they've got surveillance footage. They have her credit card receipt. They've got it. Moving on. Sidebar. Oh, go I ahead. really want to slap the shit out of all these I don't recall folks. Right. Like, I understand if it's a very packed place, you can't take in everybody's face. But there's no need to be a dick about it. No, not even looking at the picture, being dismissive. There's no reason for that if you're not a guilty party. Maybe he was, they speculate, we'll get into speculating here in a minute about Daniel Dorian. Anyway, police know that from credit card records that she was at the falls and Danny Dorian that uh, was questioned in their initial canvas, police know he's lying. So I just reread my notes, my bad, I'm sorry, moving on. Danny Dorian eventually comes to police headquarters with his attorney and he now tells them, oh yeah, I do remember her and she was at the falls. See, want to slap him. She came in close to closing time and after ordering two rum and cokes, he, I guess, informs her she has to leave. This is where some of like the details get a little sketchy between like the newspaper articles and then what investigation discovery reports there was some there's back and forth about you know he just kind of that she was being loud belligerent argumentative he wanted her out then but it's like okay so if she's loud and belligerent but you didn't remember that but now you remember that so it's only when you have your lawyer that you suddenly remember certain things 
but then there's other discussion that she was in a, uh, a, a criminal statistic argument with the bouncer, Daryl Littlejohn, talking about uh, just black people and the statistics of black people in the criminal justice system, because that's what she's studying. And um, there was some discussion about them two getting kind of loud. So... I don't know if she was getting loud with him, if she was just getting loud in general, or if she was just getting loud at all, or if he just wanted her to go because it was almost 4 a.m. and everybody wants to get the hell out of there. <laughs> so he's, he tells sources that there's some verbal back and forth and he wants her to leave because he's crazy, he just wants her out of here, or something to that effect. She doesn't want to leave until she finishes her drink, and that's when he, you know, does the snap, snap, bouncers get her out of here and that's when the two bouncers daryl little john and this other guy i think his name is tim i have to scroll down through my notes but tim um escort her out and that is the last time that he says he saw her now police are questioning if he lied because this is a second high profile murder involving the bar that his family owns so they're wondering, you know, did he lie to cover something up or did he lie because he's just trying to save face and he doesn't need a second murder in the bar business of his family? So apparently the front door of the bar is locked at this point. So they escort her out the side entrance at 4.10 a.m. where there is no cameras so that's probably why they don't have her leaving is because she went out the side. That's kind of odd. There wouldn't be that there's not cameras on every entrance and exit door of a place. Right. That, Even if it's like an unused side door, you would think they would still put a camera on that shit. So he goes on to tell police that Daryl Littlejohn had taken Emmett out the side entrance he said he heard some arguing, maybe a muffled scream, the loud argument stopped and so he just went back to closing out his night he's going through receipts blah 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 the investigation at this point shifts towards uh the two bouncers and yes tim was the other bouncer's name but so they start looking at the two bouncers daryl little john and they find out he's on parole and the other bouncer tim is just on probation uh, Tim says that before he went his way to get to Staten Island, he saw Little John talking to a Met outside, but then he started walking the opposite way to catch the ferry to get home, and he doesn't know what happened after that. They totally check his story, and it corroborates. He's got his little fast pass that he scanned to get onto the ferry, so he, he checks out, and he's in a completely different direction from Queens, Fountain Avenue, all of this. So Tim is just marked off the list. Now they get to Little John. They get him in for questioning. He says that he does remember her, and he said that they were arguing about crime statistics, and after that he escorted her out, and then he says she was on her way. He claims the whole time that, of course, you have the wrong man, and he is quoted as saying this. I'm not sure if he said this during his initial questioning, but he was quoted as saying, I'm a likely suspect because I have a criminal background and I wasn't supposed to be working. 
he and he shouldn't have been working because uh, working late hours was a violation of his parole conditions. Also, upon further reading, the state parole board only approved his employment at the local mortgage company that he worked at during the day, but had no idea he was working a second job as a bouncer after hours. Of course, police, they arrest him on a parole violation because he's working after his curfew. He's working a job that they have no fucking record of, and it is a state law in New York, or maybe just a city law, but it, it, they said New York. They didn't say New York City, but felons cannot work at bars um they there's a little i'll go more into that but you can if you have certain waivers maybe meaning you're not like a violent offender like if you just you know stole a couple of cars maybe you can still get a job there but if you're like a fucking rapist they don't want you working at a bar oh shit the thunder and lightning just started here hopefully we get through this without power outages um okay so he's now arrested for this parole violation this gives t- police time to do more digging uh, a reporter he starts canvassing the neighborhood around these bars and he starts talking to people in the neighborhood and he comes across a homeless man that was by the bar that night he says he also saw Emmett and she ap- appeared to be very intoxicated so intoxicated that this man fitting little John's description was helping her walk. Um, he's uh, helping her walk straight to his van, might I add. Another van. Uh, I think it's still the same van. He's had this van since he's gotten out of the can, so I just rhymed. Anyway, the homeless man overhears little John saying, Don't worry, I'll take you home. Not to your home. Uh, right. A home. I'm sure he's just saying this to be a comfort. Like, yeah, yeah, I'll just give you a ride home. It's no problem. So uh, the reporter turns that info into police, and the police show the homeless man a photo lineup in which he points out Little John. So now police have, you know, all these stories. They've got Danny Dorian's testimony. They've got that she was in that bar. He works there. He wasn't supposed to be there kind of a thing. And then so now police have enough to get a warrant for his DNA and to search his house and vehicle. I would start with that van. Oh, believe me, this van is going to come into play a lot through the trial. Spoiler. Anyway, why this is all going on there are now protests beginning outside of the falls bar protesters are calling for the bar to close and they are straight up calling out danny daniel dorian uh who obviously is the manager but uh they are calling him out because he was they think he's lying they're like why did you give conflicting statements to the police first you say you don't know her she wasn't there then all of a sudden you do know her and she was there um in addition to calling him out um they also call him out because he is hiring felons and like i said practice at a bar you don't say uh i figure you know maybe he just kind of hired him because it was 
quick and easy cash under the table. He can get some guys that can rough other people up and it's kind of no big deal to them. Um, what, bounce, what bar bouncers don't have some kind of criminal record. So the, <laughs> they plan to protest till this bar is closed. Side note, um, I did some looking into uh, just some stuff about Daryl Littlejohn, and I came across this article right about the time that this is all going on, which this article was dated March 8th, 2006, from the New York Daily News, and it's titled, A Scary Dude, Neighbors Say. And <laughs> it's quoted as saying, quote, his, and they're talking about Daryl Littlejohn when I say his, his nickname around the neighborhood is Nazi because he's always wearing military clothes, end quote, a neighbor told reporters. He Definitely goes on, a good guy when that's your nickname. Nazi? Just Nazi. Uh, they also went on to elaborate that sometimes he'd wear U.S. Marshals outfits. Some guys thought he was in law enforcement. Or maybe just a fan of the movie. End quote. He's basically impersonating a fucking a law enforcement officer, which is highly illegal. But we'll get more into that in a bit. Um, the article goes on to talk about him assaulting a lady that lived close by and his past uh, criminal record of spending 12 years in the can for robbery and drug possession. I'm sure that's when he got off of uh, spending time in 2004 when I talked about he used his kids at the parole hearing and everything. Uh, also, in this article, every time he gets pinched, he would give new names, and they tend to be comic book names, uh, such as Jonathan Blaze from Ghost Rider and Daryl Banks, uh, who is a Green Lantern illustrator. Fucking Johnny Blaze. It is. There's a picture. There's one of the fucking pictures where he's got uh, the mugshot, and, you know, they put the name and in the date and all that shit on the little board underneath you and that bullshit says Jonathan Blaze <sighs> Jonathan Blaze alright so um, also the night of the body being discovered a local security guard is working at uh, the landfill that's close to the park very close to the park he tells police while working his 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. shift. Jesus, that's uh, a shift and a half. Right, and he, they do check his time of when he got to work, and he got there about 7.30. Uh, this is an hour before her body was discovered at 8.26. He says that he sees a minivan, and the driver is on the phone because he can see the phone illuminated up to his face. And he j describes Daryl Littlejohn's van to a T. So now we've got... He's got this big Nazi symbol on the front of it. There was no swastika. Don't believe that. There's a ghost rider in, 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 uh, drawn on the back panel. So, okay, the nails in the coffin are piling up. Uh, they end up finding... I mean, they've got this homeless guy... They've got the credit card receipts. They've got the security guard working at the dump next to where her body was found. Um, by her body, they found a snow brush, like, because it was cold and it was snowy out, but it's just a snow brush that you remove snow off your car with. That was found by the body, and luckily, they didn't dismiss it as, oh, somebody just dumped the, you know, their trash here, or it was already here. Somebody bagged it and there was DNA on the snow brush and 
there was a drop of blood that matched little John's DNA that was found on the plastic restraints used to bind Emmett's wrists. And the, the nails just don't stop. They found some matching carpet fibers from his home <laughs> on the duct tape that was on her face. And the last cough, nail in the coffin here is his cell phone also pinged in close proximity to where Emmett's body was located. So we have a mountain of evidence here. <laughs> Little John's fucked. This brings us to about March 2nd. It is Emmett's birthday. She was supposed to turn 25 on March 2nd. Instead, everybody went to her funeral. After that, um, a little later in March, uh, around March 23rd time frame, uh, he is indicted. They finally get all they need and they indict his ass on the rape and murder of Emmett St. Gian. And they will have his pre-trial hearing September 11th, 2007, so... Great day. Right. Uh, he's got a while to sit in the can before his pre-trial. And of course, he pleads not guilty. So with the Emmett case being in the news, this brings us back to Shania Woodard. This case of Emmett prompts Shania to come to the police station because during the news story she sees little john's van and is like holy shit that's the same fucking van that i was thrown in and jumped out of i don't know if those were her exact words but that's how it went down she says she was on her way home uh, she tells police the story again she was on her way home when he approached her as a law enforcement officer and he was going to arrest her he cuffs her and throws her in the van, and she escapes by jumping from the van as it kind of slowed down to round a curve. Oh, man. So and we got history with Nazi man dressing in U.S. Marshal attire, adding into this. Right. So now we're still in March, a little bit, you know, a few days after this. He's now arraigned for kidnapping and criminal impersonation of Shania Woodard, and he goes to court September 19th. 2007 we'll get to those dates soon but we're still in 2006 we're now at june june 2006 the falls loses their liquor license oh right they close in 2006 or after um i went kind of trying to look for that and i could only find i found the last review was from march 30th 2006 and it was somebody just talking about how sad of what happened happened there and everything. So, uh, and then right around January 2007, uh, I found reviews and a little article saying that it later reopened as the Midnight Cafe. And apparently, it, I don't think it lasted long because uh, it says it's a club pretending to be a bar, much to the charging of its neighbors and landlord. So, whatever exactly that means, it kind of went from the Falls, Midnight Cafe, moving on. So now, August 2007 rolls around, he's still sitting in the fucking can. DNA evidence from Little John's van 
confirms that he did kidnap and assault Shania Woodard in October 2005. So she couldn't quite pick him out of a lineup, but she definitely knew that van. And now her DNA is in that fucking van confirming her story. Just makes you wonder how really identifiable is this van? Like, what what kind uh, of weird fucking shit is on this van? Honestly, when they showed it on the two shows, it was just a, just a generic van. There was no, like, stickers. It wasn't, like, a full size. It was, like, a minivan. It was just a regular that you would see at a soccer game, you know? It, it Yeah. yeah. So it's not like it was, you know, had free candy spray painted on the side of it or had, you know, busted out windows or a neat paint job. It was just a regular old van. I really just want to picture a fucking ghost rider riding a motorcycle with a swastika on the front of it. So September 19th, uh, 2007 rolls around and little John gets sentenced 25 years to life for the 2005 kidnapping of Shania Woodard. Then that brings us to, all right, this is when shit starts going off the rails. This is when? Yes, and uh, I think this is just a a desperate grab from a desperate attorney. So um, I found this article it was uh, dated uh, December 12, 2007, so I'm assuming that this all went down within like a day of this article. And I wrote, during the pretrial, his attorney, Joyce David is her name, wanted discussions of his criminal past to not be allowed, like how he robbed a 70-year-old lady when he was 12 years old in 1977. What? Yes, he snatched her purse while she was watching a parade. Okay, that's that's a bit more. I'm totally in my head like, gun, like, get your hands up, lady. It's a nice walker. Let me have it. So, um, I mean, now we've got this. We've got the, the 12 or however many years he did for the drug possession and everything. He's attacked Shania. He's killed and met St. Gian. We ain't done. So, anyway... <laughs> Uh, so they want his criminal past squashed and defending her, wait, see, defending her client as a victim of a conspiracy theory claiming that he was an, I cannot make this shit up. I had to like really research this because it's like, what? But, uh, she is claiming that Daryl Littlejohn was framed and Rudy Giuliani is part of it. You know, this shit would probably fly in 2021. They weren't ready for that kind of shit back then. Give it another 15 years, and this would have been like, you know, they probably got a case here. Okay, so some of the brief says, and I wrote as much of this in quotes as I could, quote, It's obvious that Mr. Littlejohn was being framed to protect a member of the Dorian clan of someone close to them, end quote. And um, once again, I, I rewrote my notes here. I don't know why I wrote so many times that the Dorian clan is this family, but I think uh, what I did was I started off on one thing and then I kind of went to another medium to find my information and just kind of retyped a bunch of stuff over and over. But um, anyway, 
he hasn't Danny Dorian hasn't faced any charges and she brings that up she's like he hasn't faced any charges of obstruction uh, and that's because uh, of his connection to Giuliani Danny who wasn't accused of uh, who was accused of lying to PD hasn't faced any obstruction charges because his sister is married to Giuliani's close friend and aide Anthony Carbonati dun 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 and she goes on to say that little John is, quote, the perfect scapegoat to protect the Dorians from any possible charges. So Rudy's close friend and aide, Anthony Carbonati, is married into the Dorian family, and the Dorians are part of Rudolph Giuliani's family. And that's how they kind of state it in the legal brief article. So we're going a few months ahead now to February 2008. And now the attorney, Joyce David, is, fuck her at this point, but she's disputing Emmett's <laughs> autopsy results, claiming that the findings don't match the postmortem photos. She's basically saying that, and I hate that I have to say this, but since Emmett's private areas weren't lacerated like they would be in a violent attack the pictures don't show that and she's claiming that well there's no laceration she's not messed up down there so we're disputing that this even happened see this is all shit that would be legit like arguments in 2021 all this stuff would fit in today's uh, climate unfortunately yeah, I, I I didn't like reading that. I that that made me mad because it's like it's obvious that she was brutalized, and got to find some way to try to. Uh... She should have stuck with the Rudy Giuliani angle anyway. <laughs> so, sometime in two thousand nine, uh, the Falls Midnight Cafe is now become. Um, I'm probably not going to pronounce this right. Osteria Marini, which is a very high-dollar Italian restaurant, and looking at their menu, the food looks really great. But anyway, <laughs> so now that it is that building is what it is to this day. So in May of 2009, the opening arguments begin in the Little John case. Prosecution states that he had done this to two other women just three months before he killed Emmett. Defense claims the same as before, that he is a criminal, so he's an easy scapegoat, and that Daniel Dorian is the real killer, and uh, Little John is being framed to protect the Dorian family. This is when they get Little John's ex-girlfriend, Sandra Smith, to testify. She testifies for the prosecution. See, now that does sound like a comic book name. Sandra Smith. Yeah. So she tells prosecution that Little John asked her to lie about the car the day after the, about using her car the day after the murder. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how her car fits into this, but I'm sure he was probably cleaning up fucking blood or some shit out of his van and he needed her car to get to work at the mortgage company that he worked at during the day. Who knows? Either way, he's trying to implicate her. Hey, will you maybe lie she, for me? Maybe she did it. 
<laughs> so then another woman comes forward in this case, and she testifies. They, I never found her identity. Um, they never, I haven't, they've just kind of disclosed her as another woman. So this third woman testifies that she was attacked in Queens, which where he happens to live, by a man who wrapped her head in duct tape and raped her after impersonating a police officer. Well, that sounds oddly familiar. Right? It's like we got a regular old pattern of this. I've heard something like that literally just like a half hour ago. Like Shania, she was unable to pick him out of a lineup, but the DNA evidence linked Daryl's mother to a t-shirt that he gave her, the woman, that little John gave to the woman. He obviously, of course, wasn't charged in this attack, but this is only another nail in the coffin to solidify that he did what he did to Emmett. He did what he did to Shania Woodard. Total another sidebar. What what kind of shirt do you think he got her? Uh, If it's his mom's, I'm sure it's probably like... A fucking I Hate Mondays Garfield shirt. (laughs) The hang in there baby with the cat hanging off the tree. Nah, it's too too nice. It's got to be something a bit like... It's got to be like a cartoon, like far side, like long, like pajama shirt kind of shit. So as I mentioned before, May 11th, the opening statements started. May 28th, 2009... The prosecution rests its case, having argued his violent patterns, having numerous testimony, and the rock-solid DNA evidence. In 2003, um, I'm sorry, 2003, I'm going back in fucking time here. He's still in the can at that point. I'm sorry, June 3rd, 2009. I got dyslexic there. My apologies. Little John was finally found guilty of first-degree murder of Emmett St. Gian. <laughs> the defense should have just been like the, that uh, dude in Machete who just gives the fuck up. <laughs> After all the evidence presented, he goes, I quit. <laughs> I just quit. Okay, well, before sentencing, Judge Abraham Gerges, I hope I said that right. Gerges. Um, it's G-E-R-G-E-S. Gerges. 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 Um, make it fancy here he says that and I quote this is a long one here while the defendant committed this horrific crime what is also so disturbing about this case is the indifference of the people employed at the bar that night the court cannot speak to the legal implications of serving someone who is intoxicated and indeed that that issue may be held before another judge but this court can decry the complaint. No, it says D-E-C-R-Y. And I wrote this like word for word as he said it. Anyway, this court can decry the complete indifference and inhumanity of the workers there that night. They were all focused on finishing their shift and leaving. Not one of those people spared a thought to the wisdom of sending an intoxicated young woman out into the deserted streets of Manhattan at 4 a.m. If only one of them had the common decency to call a taxi, we may not be here in this courtroom today, end quote, and I agree. I, I agree, 
I also thought that but, there was a law, like when I was in high school, I took business law, and we were told, maybe this has been overturned since I was in high school, it was a long time ago, but there is a law called the DRAM, D-R-A-M, DRAM shop law, that if a bartender continues to serve an intoxicated person, they can be held liable for what happens with the intoxicated person after they leave the bar. To do my best at devil's advocating it, and I'm like, I'm like a lot of like workplaces, you know, how like uh, safety codes and shit kind of really get laxed. And uh, I imagine in a bar business, like, yeah, yeah, just don't go keep on serving. Yeah, another one goes like, this has to be a, a like at least almost nightly occurrence to deal with this kind of thing in this in this environment in New York City not excusing any of it but I can kind of almost see like yeah they they fucked up they they went laxed on their uh, on their ethics and business practices but I mean I, I feel like every place does that to a degree well in July 2009 little John was finally sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for Emmett and this was to run consecutively with the kidnapping of Shania. So, this motherfucker ain't gonna see the light of day except for through some bars. Maybe they're gonna duct tape his nuts and rip it off every day. Um, let's see. I did write some stuff in here. I said, and true to the judge's word about that issue that maybe before another judge... This case actually... Okay, now I know where I went with this. This case actually does see more judges, but it's not necessarily the bar people, like like the girl working the bar that night or whatever, but um, Emmett's family sued the Falls Bar, the federal government, including the Department of Justice, okay. and the U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services Program. Ah. Uh, she went on to also sue the U.S. Recovery Bureau, Inc., which is a bounty hunter school that gave him a fake badge to be hired as a bouncer. And she also sued Daryl Littlejohn in civil court. First of all, good for her for suing them. Get Second them all. of all, okay, some of these I really get, but it's like suing him? What are you going to get? The van. Maybe you can trade in his... uh. Nazi apparel you know, for a burning or something. Well, um, the Falls Bar and the government settled. Uh, there was a financial settlement that the family did receive. And um, her suing Little John and the Recovery Bureau, Inc., um, I did not see the results for those cases. Uh, but once again, she's not going to get shit from Little John except for the satisfaction of suing him in civil court. Um, I mean, why not? Right. I mean, she could... I know prisoners make so much a day, maybe she'll get that money. <laughs> That'd be sweet. He's working for nothing. Forever. Yes. So, about this time also, uh, people are getting killed after leaving bars and clubs, and this has been a problem on the rise around New York. The Amet case was just the most high profile at the time that brought this to light and this problem and putting the wheels of chain wheels of motion to safeguard those that are just out for a night of fun. So basically Amet's law is now kind of a thing. 
there's some legislation to crack down on. Um, while doing this research, I read about uh, numerous other cases only confirming that people leaving bars and getting killed uh, was kind of a big deal in New York at the time. Um, there would be some changes that come from this high-profile case. Legislation was passed that requires security cameras at all doors at many of the bars and clubs throughout New York. Should have been a thing anyway. City officials can now close establishments that are selling fake IDs, hire unlicensed bouncers, and the licensing of the bouncers will include fingerprinting, background checks, and passing a training course, one day course. Um, so again, all this shit. I've, this should have been, been a thing done. anyway. I mean, you would think, okay, this is 2006, but you yeah, would it's think like 1985, where you're hiring. Uh, tr uh, wrestlers in training as bouncers. You've got to have better standards these days. Well, in 2006, there's plenty of ways to, you know, get a background check on somebody. Yeah. These things should have been a thing anyway. And this just leads me to the, how the cautionary tale of this is, you know, Emmett thought that this man was, you know, a bouncer. He's here to protect us all. He's here to get, you know, when people want to start shit, they're here to protect us and get that shit out of here so we can drink in peace. And she went there, guard down, birthday fun, thinking she's going to have a good time. Oh, this guy's a bouncer. He works here. He's safe. He's going to, you know, get me to a, a car, get me to a ride, make sure I'm okay. And this is just a cautionary tale that not everybody who claims that they're here for your safety is actually here for your safety. Um, and you, I mean, and you hear stories all across America, actually, where someone impersonated a police officer. And this, I got to say, is if you feel funky about a police officer pulling you over, you need to get yourself to a lighted public place. Before. Put on the hazard lights. So Put on the hazard lights so you, they know. And then if you even get on 911, call non-emergency if you happen to have that number too or whatever and be like, hey, I'm being pulled over. I don't know if this is really a cop. I'm not trying to, you know, get in, in trouble for resisting arrest. But once again, you know, we have all kinds of fucked up individuals that are preying on the assumption of safety. Well, being in 2021 now, uh, the classic serial killer isn't really a thing anymore because it's too difficult to be one because there's too many ways to get caught uh, much more quickly these days than there were in the 80s. So uh, people with this kind of tendency have to get more uh, creative, so to speak, and how they uh, go about doing what they're going to do, or it's a uh, mass shooting. So. Yeah, you got everything that you thought wasn't couldn't be a possibility starts becoming one because these these fuckers gotta start thinking outside the box because the classic '80s ways of doing doing this kind of stuff isn't a thing anymore, and they modernize so we gotta modernize ourselves to uh, be ready for whatever is out there. Yeah, and you know, first of all, you come together, you leave together. Don't no man left behind. Um. I think Claire just kind of had enough 
for the evening and wanted to call it a night. I can't blame her. I, I mean, I've been around those those folks. It's like after you could give it a couple of tries, but if they're gonna be like, I am not gonna be babysitting your ass, and, even after I've asked. And I, I I feel her. I ain't mad. Um, but rule number one: if we go out together, we're going home together. And then, second of all, if you got that funky feeling, you got that gut feeling that something ain't right, and somebody is even saying, oh, I'm a cop, oh, I'm a bounty hunter, oh, I'm some kind of law enforcement, I'm here for your safety, but you still just got that gut feeling, go with that, because that feeling could save your life. Um, Always, just kind of always be guarded. Um, Stick to the buddy system, too. Um... You just can't be too safe nowadays. Like they say in the movie, uh, out cold, keep it real while keeping it safe. Yeah, this truly is a story about just the assumption of safety and becoming a cautionary tale of, you know, just because somebody says they are here for your safety doesn't always mean that they're here for your safety. You know, he was getting paid to do a job while being a wolf in sheep's clothing because that's what Daryl Little John was. He perpetrated himself as, I'm here to protect people. I'm here to protect patrons of this bar, I should say. And then when he would approach these women, he would once again perpetrate as, oh, you know, I'm a police officer. But once again, uh, don't trust a police officer that ain't got a police car either. <laughs> no vans unless it's like a paddy wagon um, and he's brought shame to the little John name shame to Robin Hood men and tights damn you little John um, I want to send a big thank you to Danica in New York for your suggestion I hope that I did a good comprehensive timeline um, like I did the Cabrini Green that Justice. we talked about Um I do appreciate your listening and your support. And the rest of you, you can all find me on Instagram or Facebook at Housewife of Horrors. You can also find Evil, if you want to, at 3B Video. Um, On my pages, I like to just add visual aids to what we are talking about, like what Daryl Little John looked like, what Emmett St. John looks like. You look like a Nazi. Actually... He does not. He kind of looks like... He kind of looks like the actor Bokeem Woodbine. Don't bring shame upon Bokeem Woodbine. I, I'm not trying to do... I love Bokeem Woodbine. Like, Freeway is the shit. But he kind of looks like him. I hate saying that. I'm sorry, Bokeem. Uh, we know you're a listener and uh, soon-to-be patron, I'm sure. <laughs> I loved you in Freeway as Chopper. Anyway... Uh, thank you again for your suggestion. If you, anybody else listening should have a suggestion, feel free to drop me a message. I have a suggestion. I already wrote your suggestion on the list, and I'll get to you after everybody else's suggestions. Cool. Okay, so we have a couple more suggestions coming up over the next couple of Wednesdays, and I am looking forward to next week. It's also another case out of New York. Two weeks. Uh, yes, no, the Wednesday after next. Um, you know what we mean, what she means. Totally. So, uh, once again, uh, everybody stay safe out there and have a good one. And thanks for listening. Fuck Nazis. <laughs>